0: Hello! Welcome to the Open Knowledge Spectrums podcast, which explores questions of epistemic justice or knowledge equity in the context of open education and considers different possibilities for making open education and open educational practices more equitable. My name is Josie Gray, and I am your host. This podcast is my final project for my Master's of Design in Inclusive Design at OCAD University. In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Tadashi Dazono, Tadashi Dazono is an assistant professor of history and social science education at California State University, Channel Islands. Through cultural studies, ethnic studies, queer theory, and critical theory, Tadashi's research emphasizes accountability towards experiences of marginalized students by examining the production of knowledge in high school social studies classrooms. His work draws on his experiences as a queer Japanese-American cis male, his family's internment during World War II, and over 12 years of teaching in New York City public schools. He received his PhD in Social and Cultural Studies from UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Education, where his dissertation focused on quote-unquote troublemaker, students of color, in world history classrooms. Tadashi applied his dissertation findings by returning to teach in Brooklyn, New York, at a small public school focused on restorative justice. His research has been published in journals such as Race, Ethnicity and Education, Educational Theory, Studies in Philosophy and Education, and The History Teacher. I found Tadashi's work when I was doing research on inclusion and representation in curriculum. A lot of the articles I was reading were using quantitative approaches, like basically counting the number of times specific groups of people or individuals appeared in a text to evaluate who was being included and in what chapters. However, they weren't really looking at the quality of that representation, but in contrast, Tadashi's work was really digging into the layers of representation and uncovering how white supremacy was functioning at the level of language in world history curriculum. So in this episode, I talk with Tadashi about epistemic violence in world history curriculum. We talk about textbooks, standardized curriculum, queer theory, the power of grammar, and allowing students to bring their own ways of knowing into the classroom. I hope you enjoy. I think it's, yep, looks like it's going. So, to start, I was wondering if you could share a bit about your background as a person, as a teacher, as a researcher.
1: So, I'm Japanese American, um, grew up in Portland, Oregon, and I identify as queer, um, cis male, and I taught in New York City from like early 2000s to uh, just like a couple years ago till 2019. And um, I did my PhD work, kind of coursework, right kind of in the middle of that and finished doing dissertation writing while continuing to teach in New York City. And then now, currently, I teach at Cal State University, Channel Islands, um, just about an hour north of LA. Yeah. And kind of teaching wise, I always taught. High school social studies. For most of the time, taught ninth grade world history, but also taught um, ninth through twelfth grade, like U.S. history, civics, economics, and world history.
0: Great. And what brought you to work on epistemic injustice in world history curriculum?
1: Um, I guess a lot of it was through my years of teaching in New York City, teaching world history to ninth graders, and um, Almost all of the students were Black and Latino, and just knowing after years of teaching them just how they ended up, like, seeing themselves or not seeing themselves in the world history curriculum, and I think in a lot of ways that reflected my own experiences in K-12 schools of not feeling like there was room in history classes for my background in, in history. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of a lot of why I ended up going into teaching was because of experiences of racism that I had had growing up. And so it was kind of, I guess teaching was my way of dealing with racism as my way to sort of create change around that. And I guess going into doing research on this stuff was my way of kind of further processing that and figuring out, I guess even though I had been trying to change the narrative of world history to be more inclusive of my students' backgrounds, they still felt overall excluded from the narrative. And so so as a teacher, that was, felt frustrating to feel like I'm trying to make these changes, but it's not really, it's not doing the sort of change I intended it to. And so going into researching this stuff was trying to figure out, okay, what else needs to happen? like. Besides, you know, I think the content, changing the content is important, but what else is going on here besides just changing, you know, the, the places that are included in the narrative of world history?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Could you maybe talk about some of the research that you have done, like general overview?
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess my, my PhD dissertation work was then focused on interviewing high school students of color pretty much all like Black and Latinx students, 10th graders in world history classrooms, and then trying to really document their experiences and their relationships to world history. So it was kind of building off of what I had seen in my students as a teacher, and then then going back into classrooms to try to document those experiences of different students in like urban classroom settings. And so I guess in terms of my research, part of it's like documenting those experiences that students have and and their relationships um, to make teachers and researchers more aware of that sense of, you know, ways that students can feel like unseen or negated through the curriculum. And then part of my work is also then looking at curriculum, often world history curriculum, like textbooks or state standards or curriculum units and trying to look at, okay, what's problematic about these? Like where what could change in in how these are structured? Because I think oftentimes the people creating curriculum, I believe that they, they're trying to do a good job of, of being more inclusive, but there's still these sort of issues, right? So part of my work comes from the sense of like, I know that I, as a teacher, had good intentions of changing the curriculum for my students, but it's still, it's like, what's that something else that's still missing that's not creating that change that I want it to? And then I guess... Yeah. I end up doing a lot of theory work to kind of, I guess that's trying to get to the foundations. Like what's, what are the underlying things going on beyond just the surface of like, this looks like an inclusive narrative, but then what's actually going on underneath.
0: For sure. Absolutely. And so I guess you were kind of just talking about like recognizing that people come into this with good intentions, but even with those good intentions, there's still some, there's a gap there. And so where do you, do you think that gap is? Is it kind of, because it's not, you're right, it's not just curriculum, it's also the teacher and how it's taught and how students are brought in. Could you maybe talk about that?
1: So to some extent, I think another layer of these tensions is how student thinking comes into play. I guess overall, I think a lot about the idea of like knowledge production and the relations of knowledge production in the classroom. I guess I think about like, what what's the relationship between like students and the teacher and the text in the classroom, you know? And, okay, so if we just take the text itself, like the, the textbook or something, um, what went into producing that kind of set of knowledge that's there, right? And then I also try to think about in terms of students, what's the knowledge that students are bringing into the classroom? And how can that knowledge be incorporated into the overall kind of system of producing knowledge in the classroom. Um, and then the teacher as well, right? What role does the teacher play in that in terms of kind of taking authority of themselves as the expert or kind of putting the expertise in the books that they're reading or the expertise in the students, right? And their ability to listen to what students are saying. So to some extent, I through my work with interviewing students, I really try to think about, okay, What's all the thinking going on with what students are saying beyond just, is this a right answer or a wrong answer? What are the things going on into their thinking behind that, right? And to, to have the ways that students are thinking about history and world history to be just as interesting as what's in the textbook itself. So I think part of my goal is to get teachers to be really attentive to the ways that students are thinking about the world. And to have that be just as important as like the history that the world history textbook is presenting.
0: Right. And I was wondering if you could talk about like how you do that in a context where there's this state mandated curriculum with exams that students have to take. Like, how do you kind of do that kind of teaching with those structures being imposed?
1: Yeah, with this, I guess I'm kind of thinking about this more from my own experiences as a high school teacher. And then also presenting this as like a possible solution for like other teachers to, I guess, to find the ways to subvert the state standards or like kind of openings in the state standards. Like, so for example, on the New York state exam, there would be um, these thematic questions about world history. And so they don't, they, they suggest some examples of cases that you could use. So I would often try to take those Themes and think about other examples that could be used that are not necessarily like in the traditional like history textbook, right? So, for example, like thinking about like Jamaican Maroons, um, Maroon communities as an example of kind of revolution or protest, right? Um, So, thinking about like cases that might might relate more to my students from the Caribbean um, and in New York City classroom, but that aren't necessarily in the Not talked about much in the New York City textbook. Yeah, I guess it's like trying to find those openings in the ways that you can can use the sort of like bigger questions or themes and then find, you know, ways to incorporate different content into that.
0: Right. Absolutely. I guess that leads into another question that I have. My work life is very much focused on textbooks, (laughs) but I'm like fully aware that textbooks can be super limiting. So could you maybe talk about like, how do you feel about textbooks and do you use them? Are they ever useful to you?
1: Yeah, it's, I think textbooks are definitely useful. In some ways, I kind of think about them kind of like something like Wikipedia, where it's like a really good starting point and it's useful, but then it's kind of moving from the sort of like kind of background knowledge and narrative foundation that the textbook might provide. And then, and then going into much more critical, like depth of, of looking at primary sources. And I mean, I think it would be great to do some analysis of what's going on in the textbook. So to get students to do kind of discourse analysis of like, okay, how is this narrative being constructed? Like what's missing, what language is being used about certain groups and, and not being used around others. So I think, I think it would be great for teachers to use those issues around textbooks as a way to also um, study it as a text itself and to be critical about that text. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I definitely use textbooks as a teacher, you know, I'll I'll still use certain kind of base narrative texts in my own classrooms, but then um, thinking of that as just the beginning point and then doing inquiry from there.
0: Right. Using textbooks as a tool to give students the abilities to kind of analyze, like, what's the narrative here and be more critical about it rather than presenting it as this quote unquote, like master narrative.
1: And I think, I guess with my own work, I think it's important to do the critiques of the textbooks. But then I also, I guess just for myself, I try to make sure that I'm doing a sort of balance of looking at like, the problems that can be in textbooks, but be also solutions oriented, right? So what would alternatives look like? And trying to to look at models of that or examples of alternatives to using the textbook or ways to extend past just using the textbooks.
0: Yeah, I know that's a question that I have is, it's like whether textbooks just in the way that they're designed, whether they could ever really be epistemically just, or whether they could include multiple ways of knowing, like that's a question I have about textbooks is whether that's possible based on how they're designed or if kind of new designs need to be imagined. yeah, i don't I don't know the answer, but something I've been thinking about for sure.
1: Yeah, and I guess kind of I, I mean, I think I think one of the big tensions I have with textbooks is the presentation of objective knowledge. I think it's important for the textbook and the teacher to be honest about. Um, This is presenting as objective, but there's inevitably some sort of bias and ideological influence going into how this narrative is being presented. So I think either the textbooks being upfront about that bias or the teacher helping students to unpack that bias and perspective that is there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to find... A quote from one of your articles that I pulled out. Mm, Okay. There's a quote that went, um, the promotion of quote unquote, normal and traditional curriculum is just as political as those deemed radical or politically motivated. And I think that kind of speaks to what you were just saying, like claiming objectivity with a certain narrative is a political act, even though it's been kind of depoliticized by European ways of knowing or, you know. Um, so you write a lot about epistemic violence. Could you talk a little bit how you define that term and maybe an example of what that looks like?
1: Epistemic violence is it's basically when the ways that people understand the world and make sense of the world, um, when those ways of knowing are negated or ignored, it's like when when you deem someone's way of, of making sense of the world as illegitimate, it's really a big way, it's, it's, especially in terms of world history, it's a way of dehumanizing people, of kind of taking away um, that part of, of their humanity. And I think in, in terms of world history, a big component of, of how being human is defined is, is that capacity to reason. And so when you take away the legitimacy of a group of people's capacity to reason, then, um, then, then that's an act of dehumanization. And so, so to a large extent, that's why I frame it through this term of, of violence. Um, we often think of violence as these physical acts of harm. So, I, I use the term violence here to point to the way that like, words can do harm and words can be an act in themselves. And so, to, to make that sort of judgment of, of whether someone's way of knowing counts or not, to me, that um, it's important, especially in schools, to understand that as, as a form of epistemic violence.
0: Right. And with you talking about language, um, in one of your articles, you really get into the language and grammar and look at how those are used to reinforce white supremacy in grade 10 world history curriculum. So could you talk about some of the ways that white supremacy functions at the level of language?
1: Yeah. So it's it's interesting because I I think partly I, I never really thought of myself as, as being a good student in English classes. And you know, I think I always thought that I was interpreting the text wrong and and things like that. But I, I've i gotten really interested in the idea of grammar overall as really this representation of relationships of power. You know, it's just the idea of, of who is the subject in the sentence and who's the object in the sentence. And just doing some analysis around, you know, who gets to be a subject who gets to be an actor in history versus who is the object who's acted upon, I think really then opens up these power dynamics that can go kind of unnoticed, but they're they're really kind of these powerful structures at the sentence level in, in these texts, right? And so yeah and and I guess beyond just sort of object subject there, you know there's also who then is being seen as as passive or who has agency you know oftentimes non white peoples in world history are included only once they're acted upon they become a part of history once europe has had contact with them and then then they enter history and oftentimes the the events are only remarkable as as a sort of reaction to um, something that Europe has done. If it's a a revolt or something like the Haitian revolution is remarkable only in terms of being a both an example of kind of redoing what Europeans were doing in terms of political revolutions, but then also um, So sort of like repeating that action, but then also only in response to France's actions. So yeah, so I think we can see these power dynamics at this sentence level in a lot of these texts.
0: Yeah. And I I think like one of the examples that really illustrated it for me is where you talked about how passive voice functions both to remove the responsibility or the, yeah, to downplay European or white actors that are often doing the violence and doing the dispossession and all those things, and how using passive voice means you don't have to say who did those things. And then also how passive voice, like the same tool, is used to remove agency. Like it's insidious the way some of these things work.
1: Yeah, and that that was an interesting process for me in my analysis, because I think initially, in doing my analysis of the state framework was noticing those moments when the passive voice was used to kind of make non-white people's objects being acted upon and then and then I started to notice this other dynamic of oh the passive voice is still being used for like white Europeans actions and so it was really trying to figure out oh but there's still there's still this significant difference in how that passive voice functions. So it was an interesting process for me to figure out for myself what that meant, how the passive voice was being used differently. And it read very differently for me. Um, I was reacting to that difference in the passive voice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. I have a undergraduate degree in history. So like the history is very interesting to me and how history is studied is very interesting. And you're talking about how like history is periodized, like all these frameworks that are like our history, quote unquote, history, how these come from a European tradition and are then imposed through all of history curriculum. And it trickles down through all of these levels, even at the university level, a lot of these things that you have identified still exist, like this these historical claims of objectivity and this periodization, like what kind of courses get offered and who teaches them.
1: Yeah. And I think, I guess along those lines, like thinking about what epistemic violence can look like in curriculum is like, I've been recently doing work at looking at like indigenous belief systems in in the curriculum. And and a big tension that comes up with that is, you know, there, there might be, room for indigenous knowledge to be studied as an object of study, but not being acknowledged as having their own way of making sense of the world. So just the terms that are being used to study the knowledge of other people and still takes the methods and the perspective of Western science to then make sense of that and to make it intelligible. And otherwise, it's just sort of like culture that we can study versus its own legitimate way of understanding the world and knowing. So I think that's a way where epistemic violence can, it can have this appearance of like, oh, this this culture is being um, valued, but in actuality, it's still being objectified. Yeah, it's not being valued as its own legitimate system of reasoning.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. This is another quote that I pulled from your article, which, and you you said, like, the goal isn't simply to have marginalized people mentioned more often. Educators must always be attentive to how power shapes discourse. I think that really applies to what you're saying there. Like, the goal is not just talk about indigenous knowledge systems. The goal is to value those as own knowledge systems equivalent to other knowledge systems and actually change how we think about knowledge and education and all of those things.
1: Yeah. And along with that is, I think even in my early attempts to study world history on my own, I would often still read, you know, books about Africa or China or the Middle East by white scholars. And then um, I think then at some point there was a shift for me of then trying to focus on reading texts about other places by people from those places. And, you know, that's not to say the scholars who are white who are writing about those places aren't valuable but but it was to acknowledge that there's this sort of difference in in where the authors are coming from, yeah, just the approach that content ends up being different and and um, the way it's being presented is is somewhat different.
0: Yeah, absolutely. yeah, reading some of your research, I, I see you doing that like kind of acknowledging, your positionality and where you're coming from and being really transparent about your identity and how that affects the work that you do um, so could you maybe talk more about how positionality of an author and who is being cited and all of those things play into epistemic justice
1: yeah i think and i, I mean i think the idea of positionality to some extent i think that that became important to me in a lot of ways through my students in New York, um, in my first couple years of teaching, I think I I learned humility pretty fast in teaching high school, and that it's it's better to acknowledge those differences between me and my students than to make it seem like I know what they're talking about or or I know what they've gone through, and so I think. I mean, I think a big piece of that was like having always identified as a person of color and then having my students point out that like in their eyes, I'm not a person of color because I'm, I, I, you know, and, and to acknowledge that my experiences growing up as Japanese American in, in Portland, Oregon is, is so vastly different than um, my students growing up in, in New York City who are like grew up as, as black and Latinx. And that even though I see a commonality there, there's still a big difference there. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of positionality, it's kind of an important piece of that is, is having a humility about the limitations of, you know, I'm, I'm not going to claim that I can understand this fully or, you know, to to acknowledge that perspective. And I guess that kind of comes to, like, comes back to that conversation about textbooks. Like, you know, if I expect the textbooks to be honest about the perspective that they're coming from and the bias that is inherent in those textbooks, I think it's it's important to be upfront about how, where I'm coming from in my approach to writing up my research. Yeah. And, you know, and then that does play a role in who I end up citing in my papers as well. You know, I, I appreciate these sort of movements around citational practices, things like movements to cite Black women and and that that idea of, you know, what lineage are you creating in your work, and who are you placing at the kind of at the origin of of knowledge for your work? You know, to me, that that speaks a lot to that idea of epistemic injustice is is um, you know is the origin of all knowledge in in Europe at all times versus. Changing citational practices and, and changing those lineages to um, be able to trace back to other locations beyond Europe, and I think there's built into academia there's 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 an expectation of who you cite, and you know, in the publishing process, being told that I need to cite certain people, and that you know that that really becomes um, it just kind of becomes this reproduction of lineages that will remain white if we just kind of continue those practices so that's that's kind of this other way that white supremacy can kind of become reproduced in the the writing up of research is the expectation of of who gets cited how you're tracing knowledge often it ends up being tracing it back to europe
0: yeah for sure yeah i've been doing a lot of thinking about these kind of things for for this project in particular and Thinking about like how to acknowledge my own positionality, which I, as a like a white cis woman doing like talking, trying to talk about epistemic injustice, feels really important and like be transparent about that subjectivity. I'd love to talk about queer theory because queer theory is something that I'm very new to. So I was wondering if you could maybe give like a brief introduction to the field and talk about how queer theory connects to questions of epistemic justice?
1: Yeah. So queer theory for me, I guess even like starting from the sort of like, because I I think the idea of theory can often be the sort of big word that's intimidating. But I think, I think at the end of the day, like one thing I try to emphasize in my work is that the idea of theory is really, um, it's a way of, one way of trying to make sense of the world. And I think for marginalized groups, one has to always try to make sense of the world in a way that's different than how it's been presented to you, to understand yourself other than being sort of at the margins of society. And so I I think I approach theory as really, um, not so much the sort of like realm of kind of dead white men philosophers, but really, to acknowledge the ways that um, people who are marginalized try to make sense of their position in the world and that that marginalized people are, are theorizing daily and having to recalibrate like their position in, in the world and society. And so I think for me, queer theory stems from, um, or I guess my relationship to queer theory stems from like my um, own experiences of growing up feeling like being gay was bad. And then really kind of through college being able to read texts that were affirming of who I am and flipping that relationship of, you know, it's not me that's the problem. It's society that has the problem of having a limited sense of, of who is legitimate and why. And so I think kind of that experience of getting to a point of self-validation is a lot of how I relate to queer theory. Um, So I think overall queer theory is the sort of critique of power dynamics and of the power that the idea of normal um, critiquing how much power that category has in our society. Because when you have this category of normal, that means that you have the category of abnormal and the category of, of queer as kind of strange and so really queer theory is that sort of like reclaiming of that space of being kind of strange or queer and and really kind of flipping those power dynamics. So in terms of epistemic justice, queer theory is playing that role of kind of flipping that relationship of what is seen as the sort of normal and status quo way of knowing things to then consider What's in this other realm of these other ways of knowing that have been deemed as illegitimate, as um, subordinate to the dominant ways of knowing?
0: Right. So it's kind of this practice of flipping those expectations and like the narratives that we're told about what is normal and what isn't. So I guess then queer theory is applicable much broader than just the fields of gender and sexuality. Like it can be used in other contexts, is that
1: right? Yeah, and I guess queer theory ends up also critiquing sort of inclusive models as well a lot of times. I think kind of a a good example that I I use to help understand this is like, like the idea of, of gay marriage is more of a normative kind of assimilating into the mainstream by adding gay people into the system of marriage. And the sort of queer critique of marriage is more um, like, why why would I want to be a part of a club that didn't want me in there to begin with? And why would I want to be a part of a system that has been known for excluding others or um, also has strong roots in kind of placing women as objects of property? And so it's sort of instead of trying to be included into the norm, um, it's critiquing that power of that idea of normal and like let's get rid of that category
0: yeah that makes me think a lot of um Sasha Costanza's chalk's work on design justice um they write about in the book about their experience as a trans femme person going through airport security and being flagged every time they go through because they don't conform to male and female um like norms of what a body is supposed to be. And they talk about how design justice isn't about making a more inclusive airport security. It's about like taking down those systems of surveillance and all of those things. It's like kind of breaking down those systems, not just trying to be included in those systems that cause a lot of harm.
1: Yeah. And and I think kind of as a high school teacher, I think I often would link queer theory with like critical disability studies and the ways that my students were being categorized based on their learning styles and the ways that they think and process things. And just the ways that like categories of, of able-bodied and, and normal versus, um, you know, abnormal ways of, of thinking or being um, then become this other category, right? So trying to dismantle what that idea of what the normal child is or the normal functional body and mind, you know, instead of trying to get students to, you know, be able to fit into that category, well, let's question what that category is and, and what it's actually doing. Right.
0: Absolutely. Um, so I guess maybe you could talk a little bit about, I think you kind of did there, but how epistemic justice shows up in your teaching practices, both maybe in the K to 12 level, but also in the university system.
1: Yeah. And, you know, and because like we kind of started talking about like textbooks, but I think at the end of the day, like I don't care so much about the textbook. What I care about is the students and their their sense of themselves and their education. And so I think that idea of epistemic injustice really comes down to what's going to help my students. I don't know, like just have... Have, have confidence in who they are and in how they think about the world and, and, you know, to continually push them. But to, you know, I guess my concern is really about the students and how they understand themselves. And so I think a big part of how it comes up in, in my classroom is, I guess, even like K to 12 is to break down um, the idea of what being smart is or, you know, trying to move it past the sort of like, you know, this innate inborn capacity and, you know, that the grade means, you know, like I was always really so bothered when students would have this sense of like, oh, I failed this class. That means I'm stupid. And um, when a lot of times there were all these other factors that were impacting the work that they were turning in or not turning into the classroom to the teacher. So I think, Like in in my work now with teaching elementary school teachers um, how to teach social studies, I'd say a big component of the work that I do with that is kind of repairing students' relationships to what economics is, government, geography, history. Um, I think a lot of my future elementary school teachers come in with kind of like a bad relationship to some of those things like economics feels intimidating. And I think a lot of my work there is trying to break it down to both, to to acknowledge their relationships to those disciplines and to really broaden the definitions of what those mean, right? That economics is really about resources and how we distribute resources. And so that can be as simple as, you know, like having like a bag of candy and how we divide it amongst everyone in the class. Um, so really trying to, like, break some of those ideas down to their kind of core concepts. So I think, like, a, a chunk of that is kind of repairing students' relationships to those disciplines and, and to really kind of broaden what counts as knowledge in all of those disciplines and, and to really engage students' own background knowledge as, as a part of those disciplines, because oftentimes they're not seen as that. So a big part of it is like encouraging my future teacher um, students to to really try to incorporate like the knowledge that their students have as a part of that process of learning in the classroom.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so where do you see a potential to disrupt epistemic injustice and epistemic violence in world history education?
1: I think an important component of, of that is to trust Teachers a lot, and to to provide teachers with the time and the resources to develop curriculum and adapt curriculum, because I think localizing the learning is really important uh, for teachers to be able to incorporate not just the background knowledge of their students, but also of the communities in which um, the schools are embedded and the students are embedded, and you know that that takes time um, and resources to be able to to learn the histories of the communities and to incorporate those in. Um, and I think I think that's where the learning just reaches new levels of, of depth and, and richness when the, the knowledge is able to be localized and embedded within students' communities. So I think a big piece of that is really entrusting teachers with, you know, so not just this is the state curriculum and you have to teach exactly what this says to, okay, here's this sort of beginning point of state curriculum, and let's also make sure that we're we're trusting teachers to be able to develop curriculum or expand on the curriculum to really figure out ways to link students' lives and their communities to these state standards and and the state curriculum, right? Um, Or even just go beyond what the state curriculum says. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. If you are interested in learning more about Tadashi's work, I've linked a number of his articles in the show notes. That is also where you can find links to resources about other topics covered in this episode. You can learn more about this podcast at knowledge spectrums.opened.ca On the website, you can find all episodes and transcripts, along with many other resources and information related to this project. You can connect with me on Twitter at Josie underscore G and you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag OKSPODCAST. I record this podcast on the traditional and unceded territories of the Lekwungen peoples, now known today as the Esquimalt and Songhees nations, and the territories of the Wusaynish peoples. I'm very grateful to live on these territories, and working to learn and enact my responsibilities as an uninvited settler here. The theme song is Cool Upbeat Hip Hop piano. By It's Mocha Jones on freesound.org and shared under a Creative Commons Attribution License. This episode is shared under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike license, so you are welcome to share and remix the episode as long as you give credit, provide a link back to the original source, and share any remixed work under the same license. This has been Open Knowledge Spectrums. Thanks for listening.